Good evening, brethren. I'm honored to have the opportunity to respond to an invitation and bear my witness to the priesthood of God. Have you ever pondered the question, brethren, what is the worth of a human soul? Have you ever wondered about the capacity which is within each one of us? Many years ago, when I was first called to the Council of the Twelve, I received a state conference appointment to the Monument Park West Stake here in Salt Lake City. Accompanying me was a member of the General Church Welfare Committee, President Paul C. Child. Brother Child was a student of the scriptures. He had been my stake president when I was an ironic priesthood boy. We were delighted to be together. And in the priesthood session of that state conference, when it came time for Brother Child to speak, he came to the pulpit, took a copy of the triple combination in his hand, but instead of speaking, left the pulpit and the stand and walked down into the body of the priesthood. Then when he was comfortably standing among the priesthood, he opened the Doctrine and Covenants to the 18th section, and he read to the brethren, Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if ye should labor all your days in crying repentance to this people, and bring, save it, be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And then Brother Child looked at the brethren and said, Brethren, what is the worth of a human soul? He didn't call on a bishop or a bishop's counselor or a high counselor or a stake president to answer that question. No, Brother Child selected a quorum leader who had been a bit drowsy during the early part of his presentation. The man came to his feet ramrod stiff. He did the only thing he could do. He said, Brother Child, would you repeat the question, please? And Brother Child accommodated, What is the worth of a human soul? The man stood there like he'd been struck with a two-before. It seemed an eternity was passing, and no words were coming from his mouth. I offered a prayer to my Heavenly Father, something like this, Father, I've been in this position with Brother Child. Help this man. And then suddenly he said, The worth of a human soul is its capacity to become as God. And while the brethren of the priesthood pondered that reply, Brother Child turned and came back up to the stand, and as he passed me on the way to the pulpit, he said, A profound reply, a profound reply. And he continued his message, but I pondered that profound reply reply. Brethren, when we think of the worth of a human soul, I think of that great injunction of the Lord when he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The men to whom that command came were simple men. They were not men 
who were possessors of land or who were educated in the great institutions of learning. They were men of faith, men of devotion, but they were men called of God. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. He described them, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things which are wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Alma, in the Book of Mormon, said to his son Helaman, I say unto you, by simple and small things are many great things brought to pass. That beautiful promise, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. O oh, my brethren of the Aaronic Priesthood, that will comfort you as you prepare for your responsibilities as officers in the deacons' quorum, the teachers' quorums, the priests' quorums. It will give you encouragement as you prepare for your missions, and that particular promise will sustain you in those days of discouragement which come to everyone. That same promise, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, that will motivate and inspire those of us who hold the Melchizedek priesthood in our work in the quorums, in the wards, in the stakes, in the missions. The Lord said, Wherefore be not weary in well-doing, for out of small things proceedeth that which become great. And then I love his statement, I, the Lord, requireth the heart, and the willing mind, and the willing and the obedient shall eat of the good of the land of Zion in the last days. Brethren, in this marvelous church of which we're a part, we recognize that faith is needed, trust is needed, enthusiasm is needed, and we must be on the move when we respond to calls to serve. I've been thinking a little bit lately about the early missionary work in this dispensation. I read where as early as April of 1830, Phineas Young, with a copy of the Book of Mormon in hand, a copy which he received from Samuel Smith, the brother of the prophet, went to Upper Canada, and there in the city of Kingston, in that year of 1830, bore the first recorded testimony ever given in this dispensation outside of the borders of the United States. In 1833, the prophet Joseph himself, along with Sidney Rigdon and Freeman Nickerson, went to Upper Canada, to the Mount Pleasant village, and there they taught the gospel. There they saw conversion before their eyes. They baptized. They established the church. And in 1835, six members of the Council of the Twelve attended a special conference in Canada. I remember, too, that it was in 1836 that Heber C. Kimball and some of the other brethren went to the home of Parley P. Pratt, and there, in response to the whisperings of the Spirit of the Lord, 
put their hands on the head of Parley P. Pratt, much like Brother Oaks was explaining this evening, and they gave him a prophetic blessing. In that blessing, Heber C. Kimball said, Thou shalt go to the land of Upper Canada, even to the city of Toronto, and there ye shall find a people prepared to receive a fullness of the gospel, and they will receive you, and you will establish the church among them. And many shall receive a knowledge of the gospel, and great shall be their joy. And then he said something very significant. And from the experience in this mission and the things that come out of this mission, shall the fullness of my gospel spread to the land of England, and a great and marvelous work shall be accomplished in that land. This year, we commemorate the 150th anniversary of the establishment of the work in England. I am grateful that I had the opportunity to serve as a mission president in that seedbed for proselyting even the land of eastern Canada. I am grateful that President Benson and President Hinckley have had the opportunity to serve in the land of England and be a part of that great and marvelous work which has taken place since that prophecy was first given. The call to serve, brethren, has ever characterized this work. The call came to Kirtland. Revelations followed. The call came to Missouri. Persecutions prevailed. The call came to Nauvoo. Prophets died. The call came to the Valley of the Great Salt Lake. Hardship beckoned. That journey was a trial of faith, but faith forged in the furnace of trials and tears brings forth trust and testimony. Lessons from the past, brethren, can quicken our memories and cause us to ponder how the Lord can bless His servants. He said, Wherefore? When ye are on the Lord's errand, whatsoever ye do according to the will of the Lord is the Lord's business. A great and marvelous lesson of this truth occurred on a radio and television program that I used to watch avidly. My generation will remember Death Valley Days. Don't you remember that, brethren? And the narrator, the old ranger, he brought the Old West right into the living room. And on one occasion, he told a story that I have never forgotten. It was the story of how the glass was obtained for the windows of the St. George Tabernacle. The glass had been manufactured in the East, put in cartons, and then on a sailing vessel, which made its long and laborious way down the coast of North America, South America, around the Cape of Good Hope, and all the way back up to Southern California. Then the glass was carted to San Bernardino, where it awaited the Mormon Teamsters with their teams and wagons from St. George. David Cannon in St. George was in charge of the project to obtain the glass. One problem. $800 was owing. 
They had nothing. David Cannon said to his wife, Wilhelmina, and little David Jr., Do you think we can do it? And David Jr. said, I know we can, Daddy. I know we can. And he went to a secret hiding place and retrieved all that he had, two pennies, gave it to his father and said, Will this help, Daddy? Daddy said, This will help. And then Wilhelmina Cannon went to one of the hiding places that every woman has in her home, and she brought forward all that she had, $3.50 in silver. She gave it to David. Will this help? He said, It will help. And then the entire community was scoured for money. And after great sacrifice, they amassed the total of $200, $600 shy of the required amount. That night, David Cannon and his wife and boy sighed the sigh of those who have tried their best and have failed. Too tired to sleep, really, too weary to eat, the little family prayed. Morning came early in St. George. They could hear the sound outside the cannon home of the Teamsters, the horses, the wagons. They came into the kitchen to hear the news from David Cannon. And just as David was about to tell them, they did not have the money for the glass for the windows. There was a knock at the kitchen door. And when David opened it, there was Peter Nielsen from the nearby community of Washington. And he said to Brother Cannon, Brother David, I have had a persistent dream all night that I should take the money that I have saved for my house and bring it to you, that you would have a purpose for it. And he took a red bandana, which was loaded with that which he had saved. He undid the knot and took gold piece after gold piece from that red bandana and placed each one on the kitchen table of David Cannon. When Brother Cannon counted the gold pieces, they totaled exactly six hundred dollars, the precise amount needed to obtain the glass for the windows of the tabernacle. They offered a prayer of thanksgiving, and then with a shout they were on their way to obtain the precious glass. David Cannon, Jr. was 87 years of age when that program came into my living room. He smiled all the way through the narration. I think he was secretly thinking of how Peter Nielsen dropped those 600 pieces of gold, so to speak, of that value on his father's kitchen table. I think he was thinking of how the Lord had answered the prayer of the faithful right before their eyes. Brethren, temples and tabernacles are made of more than glass or stone or mortar or brick or wood, particularly when we're speaking of the temples described by Paul the Apostle, who said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Such temples are made of faith and fasting. They are made of service and sacrifice. They are made of tears and trials. But they bring forth trust, and testimony. To you, my brethren, 
whenever you receive a call to serve, whether it's to serve our God or whether it's to serve His children here on earth, may I leave with you this assurance, whom God calls, God qualifies. He who notes the sparrow's fall shall not leave unattended the servant's need. Brethren, you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen generation. I love you and leave my witness with you. I plead with all my heart that we will be in a position to respond to that beautiful statement of the Prophet Joseph Smith when he said, Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward, brethren, not backward. Courage, brethren, on, on to the victory. And may we ever be found following that plea of the Prophet Joseph is my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Tabernacle Choir has just sung, Behold, This is the Way. President Benson has asked that I now speak to you. My brothers and sisters, I am grateful for the privilege and opportunity of being with you in this great world conference. I am thankful that I am alive to see this day of prophecy fulfilled in the mighty work of the Lord. There never was a brighter day than today in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There never was a season when the work of the Lord prospered as it now prospers. There never was a time for greater rejoicing and gratitude on the part of Latter-day Saints everywhere. You heard yesterday the annual statistical report of the Church. To some, that may have seemed as a dull exercise in numbers. To me, the information given represents a miracle. At the end of the year, the membership of the Church moved comfortably past the six million mark. What a miraculous and remarkable flowering from that small seed planted April 6, 1830 in the log home of Peter Whitmer where six men formally organized the Church. At the end of 1986, there were 1,622 organized stakes of Zion. What an advancement of geometric proportions from that first small stake organized in Kirtland in 1831. At the end of last year, there were more than 15,000 local congregations scattered through 122 colonies, territories, and sovereign nations. There were 193 organized missions and almost 32,000 missionaries serving therein. What a change from the single effort of Samuel Smith, who, even before the Church was organized, put a few copies of the Book of Mormon in his knapsack and tramped the roads of western New York to leave a copy here and a copy there to touch for everlasting good the lives of those who read them. There were 5,000 copies of that first edition, 
made possible in their printing by the generosity of Martin Harris, who mortgaged a farm to pay for them. Last year, there were 1,643,000 copies of this same book printed and distributed in English alone, with a total distribution in all languages approaching 3 million. Notwithstanding his problems, I have a great feeling of love for Martin Harris, who pledged the security of his lands to make possible the printing of this sacred record. It was an act of faith which has borne sweet fruit, the fruit of conversion and testimony and love for the Lord in the lives of many millions over the earth. I am grateful for the repeated urging of our prophet of this day that we read this sacred record with a promise that in doing so we shall draw nearer to the Lord. Each week the Church Appropriations Committee meets to consider and authorize the expenditure of Church funds for the building of chapels and other purposes. The, uh, the agenda is essentially a list of place names in terms of wards and stakes together with figures of expenditure. A stranger looking upon that exercise week after week might regard it as a rather prosaic thing, but to me it is a constantly renewing miracle. I have picked a short sample from a typical agenda. One a new building for the McKaylee Ward of the Helsinki-Finland Stake, another for the Obrages Ward of the La Paz-Bolivia-Miraflores Stake, yet another for the Quilmes West Ward of the Buenos Aires-Argentina-Quilmes Stake, similarly for the Campo Grande Ward in the Brazil-São Paulo North Stake, the Gympie Ward of the Brisbane-Australia Stake, the Buchan Ward of the Korea Kongsil Stake, the Kennedy First Ward of the Bogota Columbia Kennedy Stake, the Karamari Ward of the Caracas Venezuela Stake. There were yet others. I've named these only to illustrate the growing universality of this work. And so it goes week after week in the great undertaking to provide housing for units of the Church far and near. The Kirtland Temple was the first structure built by the Church in this dispensation. That was only 151 years ago. What a miraculous change has come to pass. This morning I think of this temple square on which we meet in the tabernacle. It has become one of the significant tourist attractions of the nation with 2.6 million people who came to see us last year. Let me read to you a few comments left by some of these visitors in a single week. From a Presbyterian from Michigan, I can see an absolute commitment to Jesus Christ in you people. From a California Christian, the impact Temple Square had on me is beyond belief. I must hear more about it. From a Baptist pastor from California, this visit is wonderful to me. I am amazed. May God bless you. From a tourist from Argentina, 
I need you. From a Lutheran from Wisconsin, life had lost direction. I have read the Book of Mormon, and it has made a great impression on me. From Australia, I appreciate what your tour of the life of Christ has shown me. From Illinois, I hope you have a church in Chicago. <laughs> from a Baptist from Canada, I want to have the inner peace with me all of the time as I felt it on Temple Square. From a Church of England member, I want to be part of this. I want to be a member of this church. Is this possible? Is not all of this, my brethren and sisters, a miracle? I mention in passing one other impressive and remarkable thing. This coming July will be a season of celebration for members of the Church in the British Isles. There will be commemorated the 150th anniversary of the opening of the British Mission. That, too, was an act of faith. The year was 1837. The Latter-day Saints were settled in two locations, most of them in and around Kirtland, Ohio, and the others some 800 miles distant in Missouri. It was a season of economic depression. Banks failed. Fortunes were lost. Among the failures was the bank in Kirtland. A spirit of criticism and evil speaking threatened the Church. In those circumstances, Joseph Smith said to Heber C. Kimball, Brother Heber, the Spirit of the Lord has whispered to me, let my servant Heber go to England and proclaim my gospel and open the door of salvation to that nation. It is difficult for us to comprehend the enormity of that call. Such a request from one ordinary man to another would have been incredible. It meant leaving a family destitute. It meant traveling to New York and crossing the sea when he had no money. It meant that a man with very little schooling who had grown up and lived in frontier communities would go to the great cities of the British Isles among a people known for their education and enlightenment. In his mind, Heber C. Kimball demurred. He thought of all these problems. He then wrote in his journal, However, all these considerations did not deter me from the path of duty. The moment I understood the will of my Heavenly Father, I felt a determination to go at all hazards, believing that He would support me by His almighty power and endow me with every qualification that I needed. And although my family was dear to me and I should have to leave them almost destitute, I felt that the cause of truth, the gospel of Christ, outweighed every other consideration. That undertaking will be spoken much of during these coming months. Suffice it to say that Heber C. Kimball and his six associates at the call of Joseph Smith left their home to go to the British Isles, there to open the work from where the cause spread to Europe and subsequently across the world. What is all of this of which I speak? It is the lengthened shadow of the hand of God. It is the lengthened shadow of a mighty prophet, Joseph Smith, 
who was called and ordained to open this, the dispensation of the fullness of time spoken of in the scriptures. His numerous critics, now as in the past, spend their lives in trying to explain him on some basis other than the one which he gave. Of what credibility, I ask, is their estimate in comparison with the opinions of those who already side in laying the foundations of this ever-growing, ever-strengthening cause. Permit me to give you four or five testimonies of men who knew him, who worked with him, who prayed with him, who suffered with him, who forfeited comfort and wealth and ease because of their conviction that he was the anointed of the Almighty, a prophet in this generation. I begin with Brigham Young, who investigated for two years before he joined the church. Said he concerning this leader, who can justly say aught against Joseph Smith? I was as well acquainted with him as any man. I do not believe that his father and mother knew him any better than I did. I do not think that a man lives on the earth that knew him any better than I did. And I am bold to say that Jesus Christ accepted. No better man ever lived or does live upon this earth. I am his witness. John Taylor was a gifted and educated Englishman, a lay preacher of the gospel, a man of recognized intelligence. Said he, I was acquainted with Joseph Smith for years. I traveled with him. I have been with him in public and in private. I have associated with him in counsel of all kinds. I have listened hundreds of times to his public teachings and his advice to his friends and associates of a more private nature. I was with him living and with him when he died, when he was murdered in Carthage jail by a ruthless mob with their faces painted black. I was there and was myself wounded in my body. I have seen him under all these various circumstances, and I testify before God, angels, and men that he was a good, honorable, and virtuous man, that his private and public character was irreproachable, and that he lived and died a man of God. Wilfred Woodruff was not baptized until three or four years after the church was organized. He went to Kirtland and there met Joseph Smith. He traveled with him to Missouri. He said, we traveled a thousand miles together. There I had my first experience in the dealings of God with his prophet. I understood perfectly well that he was a prophet. I read the vision. I read his revelations. And I knew that they could not come from any man on the face of the earth but by the inspiration of Almighty God. Orson Pratt, a man with a sharp and incisive mind, said, In 1830 I became intimately acquainted with the prophet Joseph Smith and continued intimately acquainted with him until the day of his death. I had the great privilege of boarding at his house so that I not only saw him as a public teacher but as a private citizen and as a husband and father.
I witnessed his earnest and humble devotions, both morning and evening, in his family. I heard the words of eternal life flow from his lips, nourishing and soothing and comforting his family, neighbors, and friends. I saw his countenance light up as the inspiration of the Holy Ghost rested upon him, dictating the great and most precious revelations now printed for our guide. I knew that he was a man of God. It was not a matter of opinion with me, for I received a testimony from the heavens concerning that matter. Such the words of appraisal of four or five of those who knew him and who would have given their lives for him. But there were others of his generation, not of his faith, who offered appraisals of his character. Most quoted is Josiah Quincy, the gifted New Englander who visited Nauvoo 43 days prior to the prophet's death and who subsequently became the distinguished mayor of Boston. His observation of the prophet Joseph Smith bears repeating. Born in the lowest ranks of poverty, without book learning, and with the homeliest of all human names, he had made himself at the age of 39 a power upon earth. Of the multitudinous family of Smith, none had won the hearts and shaped human lives as this Joseph. His influence, whether for good or for evil, is potent today, and the end is not yet. One who loved him has said concerning this mighty prophet, when a man gives his life for the cause he has advocated, he meets the highest test of his honesty and sincerity that his own or any future generation can in fairness ask. When he dies for the testimony he has borne, all malicious tongues should ever after be silent and all voices hushed in reverence before a sacrifice so complete. This Book of Mormon, which he brought forth by the power and inspiration of the Almighty, this remarkable thing alone would be more than enough to guarantee his place in history forever. Add to this the marvelous revelations that came by the power of God through him, and we have a prophet whose stature looms above all his insignificant detractors as a sainted giant looking down on a crowd of pygmies. To quote another, one who betrayed and offended him and later knew his forgiveness and love, great is his glory and endless his priesthood. Ever and ever the keys he will hold Faithful and true, he will enter his kingdom, crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. Is it any wonder that this work moves on from nation to nation, from people to people? Is it any wonder that it grows in strength and numbers, in influence and interest, notwithstanding its critics and naysayers? It is the work of God restored to the earth through a prophet of whom Parley P. Pratt, his contemporary, said, His works will live to endless ages,
and unnumbered millions yet unborn will mention his name with honor as a noble instrument in the hands of God, who during his short and youthful career laid the foundation of that kingdom spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which should break in pieces all other kingdoms and stand forever. As I said at the outset, I marvel at what is happening in the growth and expansion of this work. And yet I know that what we see today is but the scratching of the surface of far greater things yet to come. I testify of this by the power of the Holy Spirit. I testify of the living reality of God, the Eternal Father, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I testify of the divine calling of the Prophet Joseph Smith and of every other man who has succeeded in that prophetic calling. I testify of the truth and vitality of this church in the name of him whose name it bears and whose work it is, even Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren of the priesthood, I rejoice in this opportunity to say a few words to you tonight. My beloved brethren of the priesthood, it has been a joy to be with you this evening. To be instructed by these choice men of God, I have felt of your power and faith, and I commend you for your attendance here tonight. This evening, I feel impressed to speak to you about a priesthood program that has been inspired from its inception, a program that touches hearts, that changes lives, and that saves souls, a program that has the stamp of the approval of our Father in Heaven, a program so vital that if faithfully followed will help spiritually renew the church and exalt its individual members and families. I am speaking about priesthood home teaching. With all my heart, I pray that you will understand by the Spirit exactly my feelings 
about home teaching. Brethren, home teaching is not just another program. It is the priesthood way of watching over the saints and accomplishing the mission of the church. Home teaching is not just an assignment. It is a sacred calling. Home teaching is not to be undertaken casually. A home teaching call is to be accepted as if extended to you personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior himself was a teacher, the only perfect man to walk the face of the earth was a humble, dedicated, inspired teacher who brought to his followers salvation and exaltation. Oh, that all of the brethren of the church would catch that vision of home teaching. Tonight, I am not teaching new doctrine, but I am reaffirming old doctrine. Quoting from the from section twenty of her doctrine and covenants revealed to the prophet Joseph in April of eighteen thirty, the Lord declared to the priesthood. Quote, watch over the church always and be with them and strengthen them and see that there is no iniquity in the church and see that the church meet together often and also see that all the members do their duty and visit the house of each member exhorting them to pray vocally and in secret and attend to all family duties. Brethren, that is priesthood home teaching. This kind of teaching was done in Christ's time by his early disciples. It was it was practiced in Book of Mormon times. In the first chapter of Jacob, Jacob, we read, For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph had been consecrated priests and teachers of the people by the hand of Nephi. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach them 
the word of God with diligence. From the beginning of this inspired program in our day, leaders of the church have emphasized over and over again the importance of home teaching. President Marion G. Romney in general conference declared home teaching properly functioning brings to the house of each member two priesthood bearers divinely commissioned and authoritatively called into the service of their priesthood leader, the bishop. These home teachers, priesthood bearers, carry the heavy responsibility and the glorious responsibility of representing the Lord Jesus Christ in looking after the welfare of each church member. They are to encourage and inspire every member to discharge his duty, both family and church. President David O. McKay stated, home teaching is one of our most urgent and most rewarding opportunities to nurture and inspire, to counsel and direct our Father's children. It is a divine service, a divine call. It is our duty as home teachers to carry the divine spirit into every home and heart, to love and work and do our best, will bring unbounded peace, joy, and satisfaction to the noble, dedicated teacher of God's children. My good brethren of the Melchizedek Priesthood and the Aaronic Priesthood, home teaching is an inspired program. It is the heart of caring, of loving, of reaching out to the one, both the active and the less active. It is priesthood compassionate service. It is how we express our faith in practical works. It is one of the tests of true discipleship. It is the heart of the activation effort of the church. It is a calling that helps to fulfill the scriptural injunction. Out of small things proceedeth that which is large. There is no greater calling than that of a home teacher. There is no greater church service rendered to our Father in Heaven's children than the service rendered by a humble, dedicated, committed home teacher. 
There are three fundamentals that are essential to effective home teaching. May I discuss these briefly? First, know well those you are to home teach. Really know them. You can't serve well those you don't know well. President Marion G. Romney emphasized this. Every pair of home teachers should become personally acquainted with every child, youth, and adult in the family to whom, to whom they are assigned to perform fully our duty as a home teacher we should be continually aware of the attitudes and activities and interests, the problems, the employment, the health, the happiness, the plans and purposes, the physical, temporal, and spiritual needs and circumstances of everyone, of every child, every youth, and every adult in the homes and families who have been placed in our trust and care as a bearer of the priesthood and a representative of the bishop. And the key to effective working with the family is, is to the father. Know his righteous desires for his family and help him to realize them. And I would urge you to do the little things, the small things that mean so much to a family. For example, know the names of all the family members. Be aware of birthdays, blessings, baptisms, and marriages. On occasion, write an appropriate note of commendation or make a phone call congratulating a member of the family on special achievement or an accomplishment. With our home teaching companion, Regularly review pages 8 and 9 of the Melchizedek Priesthood Handbook for some excellent suggestions on how to develop and home teach. Above all, be a genuine friend to the individuals, families you teach. As the Savior declared to us, I will call you friends, for ye are my friends. A friend cares, a friend loves, a friend listens, and a friend reaches out. A friend makes more than a dutiful visit each month. A friend is more concerned about helping people 
than getting credit. We remember the story President Romney used to tell about the so-called home teacher who once called at the Romney, Romney home on a cold night. He kept his hat in his hand and shifted nervously when invited to sit down and give his message. Well, I tell you, Brother Romney, he responded, it's cold outside and I left my car engine running so it wouldn't stop. I just stopped in so I could tell the bishop I made my calls. We can do better than that. Brethren, much better. The second fundamental to effective home teaching is to know well the message you are to deliver in each home. And know that it is the particular message the Lord would have you give to the families and individuals you have been asked to serve. Home teachers should have a purpose our goal in mind and should plan each visit to help meet that purpose. Before making their visits, home teaching partners should meet together to pray, review instructions from their leaders, go over the message they will take to the families and discuss any special needs. Home teachers should present an important message that they have prepared or that they bring from priesthood leaders. We strongly recommend that the home teachers use the monthly message from the First Presidency printed in the Ensign and the Church's International Magazines. The head of the family may also request a special message for members. And as a, a vital part of that message, whenever possible, read together the scriptures with families you home teach. Make this a regular part of your visit. Especially read together verses from the Book of Mormon that will fortify your message. Always remembering the words of the Prophet Joseph that a man would get near to God by abiding by its precepts the precepts of the Book of Mormon than by any other book. Your families need the continual strength of the Book of Mormon. May our message be like Alma 
instructed the teachers of his day. He commanded them that they should teach nothing, save it were things which he had taught and which had been spoken by the mouth of the holy prophets. Carry the right message and then teach with the Spirit. The Spirit is the single most important ingredient in this work. Through the Spirit, the individuals and families you teach will know of your love and concern for them and will also know of the truthfulness of your message and will have a desire to follow it. As home teachers, live the kind of lives yourselves that will invite the Spirit. Live the gospel so you can effectively teach. Alma further instructs us, trust none to be your teacher nor your minister except he be a man of God walking in his way and keeping his commandments. Therefore, Alma consecrated all the priests and all the teachers and none were consecrated except they were just men. Therefore, they did watch over their people and did nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. Also remember that whenever possible, praying in the home should be a part of every home teaching visit. As you may be called upon to pray, pray with the Spirit. Pray with real intent and invoke the Lord's blessings upon the individuals and families you are teaching. Yes, the second fundamental to effective home teaching is to know well your message. Teach it by the Spirit and make praying and reading the scriptures an integral part of that message. May I now suggest the third and final ingredient to effective home teaching, and that is to truly magnify your calling as a home teacher. Do not settle for mediocrity in this great priesthood program Be an excellent home teacher in every facet of the work. Be a real shepherd of your flock. Make your home teaching visit early in the month, allowing extra time for additional follow-up contacts as necessary. Whenever possible, Make a definite appointment for each visit. Let your families know when you are coming. 
and respect their time. Melchizedek priesthood bears, when you have an Aaronic priesthood young man as your companion, train him well. Use him effectively in working with your families and in teaching them. Have these young men feel of your love of home teaching so that when they become senior companions, they will love their calling and magnify them as you have. Remember both quality and quantity home teaching is essential in being an effective home teacher. You should have quality visits, but you should also make contact with each of your families each month. As shepherds of all of your families, both active and less active, you should not be content with only reaching the 90 and 9. Your goal should be 100% home teaching every month so that this can be quality home teaching. We urge priesthood leaders not to assign more than three to five families or individuals to a pair of home teachers. This may be a challenge in some cases, but we would invite you to give prayerful consideration to these assignments, keeping the faithful track of each member you are called to home teach is essential. The Book of Mormon beautifully teaches this principle. In the sixth chapter of Moroni, we read, after they had been received unto baptism, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken, and they, that they might be numbered, remembered, and nourished by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone on the merits of Christ, who was the author and finisher of their faith. Brethren, may we remember all of our individuals and families and number them each month and nourish them by the good word of God to keep them in the right way. Furthermore, we call upon quorum leaders to conduct spiritual monthly home teaching interviews, receive a report on the home teacher's activities, evaluate current needs, make assignments for the coming month, and teach, strengthen, and inspire the home teachers in their sacred calling.
Such interviews with home teachers provide a setting for leaders to measure progress and better serve the individuals and members they have been called to serve. May I close by bearing you my testimony regarding home teaching. I can recall as if it were yesterday, growing up as a boy in Whitney, Idaho. We were a farm family, and when we boys were out working in the field, I remember fathers calling to us in a shrill voice from the barnyard, tie up your teams, boys, and come in. The ward teachers are here. Regardless of what we were doing, that was the signal to assemble in the sitting room to hear the ward teachers. These two faithful brethren, priesthood bearers, would come each month either by foot or by horseback. We always knew they would come. I can't remember one miss. And we would have a great visit. They would stand behind a chair and talk to the family. They would go around the circle and ask each child how he or she was doing and if we were doing our duty. Sometimes mother and father would prime us before the ward teachers came so we would have the right answers. <laughs> but it was an important time for us as a family. They always had a message, and it was always a good one. We have refined home teaching a lot since those early days in Whitney. But it is basically the same. The same principles are involved. Caring, reaching out, teaching by the Spirit, an important message each month, a concern and loving of each member of the family. God bless the home teachers of the church. You are in the front line of defense to watch over and strengthen the individuals and the family unit. Understand the sacredness of your calling and the divine nature of your responsibility. Know well those you are to home teach. Know well your message and deliver it with spirit. And finally, truly magnify your calling as a home teacher. As you do this, I promise you the blessings of heaven and the indescribable joy that comes 
from helping to touch hearts, change lives, and save souls. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Everyone is awake after that. That's wonderful. President Benson and the brethren have asked that I deal with two, two or three matters of concern to all of us. The first of these is reverence in our meetings, particularly in our sacrament meetings. This is a matter that ought to concern every holder of the priesthood, whether Aaronic or Melchizedek, as well as every member of the Church. Why do we go to sacrament meetings? We go, of course, to renew our covenants in partaking of the sacrament. This is the most important element of these meetings, and we go to be instructed to meditate upon the things of God and to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We go because of the commandment of the Lord who said in Revelation, Thou shalt offer a sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in righteousness even that of a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. We need, every one of us needs to pause from the hectic pace of our lives and to reflect upon things sacred and divine. I recall that when I was a missionary in London, England more than 50 years ago, we held our meetings in the Battersea Town Hall, which we rented. The floors were hard and we sat on chairs. Every time a chair moved, there was a noise. But this was not the worst aspect of the situation. Far worse was the noisy socializing of the members of the branch. On one occasion, we invited a family whom we had met while tracting. With great expectation, we as missionaries stood by the door to welcome them. There was the usual convivial spirit in the hall, with the members talking noisily one with another. When this family came into the room, they quietly moved towards some chairs knelt for a moment and closed their eyes in a word of prayer. Then they sat in an attitude of reverence amidst all the commotion. Frankly, I was embarrassed. They'd come to what they regarded as a worship service, and they behaved themselves accordingly. At the close of the meeting, they left quietly, and when we next met them, they spoke of their disappointment in what they had experienced. I've never forgotten that. I invite you, brethren of the priesthood, wherever you may be, and particularly you members of bishoprics, to begin an earnest effort to cultivate a more beautiful spirit of worship in our sacrament meetings and an attitude of increased reverence generally in our church buildings. I'm grateful that we now have carpeted aisles in our chapels. And in many of the newer buildings, carpet over the entire floor. Fixed pews are in place rather than folding chairs. 
in planning, in renovating, in maintaining our structures, we ought always to have in mind the importance of those physical aspects which contribute to a spirit of worship. Music, of course, is an important factor. Our buildings, for the most part, are equipped with organs, which, when properly played, can add much to the worship atmosphere of the service. The singing of hymns and the rendition of selections from the great sacred oratorios by ward choirs all enhance the spirit of worship. Socializing, of course, is an important aspect of our program as a church. We encourage the cultivation of friends with happy conversations among our people. However, these should take place in the foyer, and when we enter the chapel, we should understand that we are in sacred precincts. All of us are familiar with the account in Exodus of the Lord's appearance to Moses at the burning bush. When the Lord called, Moses answered, Here am I. And the Lord said, Draw not nigh thither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. We do not ask our people to remove their shoes when they come into the chapel, but all who come into the Lord's house should have a feeling that they are walking and standing on holy ground and that it becomes them to deport themselves accordingly. The example of those on the stand will do much to create the proper atmosphere. If there's preparation beforehand, if there's a brief prayer meeting preceding the service, it would be exceptional when there might be any need for conversation among those seated on the stand while the service is in progress. The young men of the Aaronic priesthood should be trained to know that the sacrament which they administer is sacred and holy unto the Lord. Encouragement and training should be given to see that the prayers are spoken plainly and in a spirit of communion with our Father in heaven. The priest at the sacrament table places all in the congregation under sacred covenant. The offering of the prayer is not a ritual to be thoughtlessly spoken. It is rather the voicing of an obligation and a promise. Cleanliness of hands as well as purity of heart, should be taught to the priests who officiate at the sacrament table. At the conclusion of the administration of the sacrament, it is not uncommon for the priests and even the deacons to leave their places and scatter over the chapel. Possibly the bench on which the priests sit are not is not comfortable. If so, Perhaps space could be reserved on the front row to which they could quietly move at the conclusion of the sacrament service. Most important of all is the training of our people, and particularly our young people, in the importance of reverence in the chapel. I wish that every father in the Church would make this a matter of discussion with his family at the next family home evening and occasionally in family home evenings thereafter. The subject for discussion might be something like this. What each of us can do to improve the spirit of our sacrament meetings. 
Wonderful things will happen if this is done. With our block plan scheduling, three hours is a long time for a small child to sit in meetings. It's a long time for a mother who has small children around her. But with thoughtful training and careful consideration of all elements of the situation, a great improvement can be brought to pass. Mothers with small babies may plan to sit near the aisle so that, if necessary, they can leave quietly to care for their children. To ancient Israel, Jehovah said, He shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Brethren, we ask that you discuss this important matter in your homes and that you who are officers discuss it in your planning meetings. There is much room for improvement, and with a little effort it can happen. As reverence is improved, all will be blessed. I leave the matter in your hands. I speak, speak next on an item of great delicacy. <clears throat> I pondered much over whether it should be discussed in the leadership meeting held last night or whether it should be discussed in this general priesthood meeting. I concluded that the subject is of such widespread concern, and some knowledge about it is had so generally, even by boys and girls of the deacon's age, that I might properly treat it here. I do so with sensitivity for the nature of the subject. There is a plague of fearsome dimensions moving across the world. Public health officials are greatly concerned, and everyone should be. The Surgeon General of the United States has forecast an AIDS death toll of 170,000 Americans in just four years. The situation is even more serious in some other areas of the world. AIDS is a commonly fatal malady caused primarily from sexually transmitted disease and secondarily from drug abuse. Unfortunately, as in any epidemic, innocent people also become victims. <clears throat> we with others hope that discoveries will make possible both prevention and healing from this dread affliction. But regardless of such discoveries, the observance of one clearly understandable and divinely given rule would do more than all else to check this epidemic. That is, chastity before marriage and total fidelity after marriage. Prophets of God have repeatedly taught through the ages that practices of homosexual relations, fornication, and adultery are grievous sins. Sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage are forbidden by the Lord. We reaffirm those teachings. Mankind has been given agency to choose between right and wrong. Said the prophet Lehi to Jacob, Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediation of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil, 
for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. I repeat, each of us has a choice between right and wrong. But with that choice, there inevitably will follow consequences. Those who choose to violate the commandments of God put themselves at great spiritual and physical jeopardy. The Apostle Paul said the wages of sin is death. Jacob taught, remember, to be carnally minded is death and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Jesus gave a commandment to control our thoughts as well as our deeds. He said, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. There is a principle of accountability with reference to human behavior. The prophet Alma declared, For our works shall condemn us. Yea, all our words will condemn us. We shall not be found spotless. And our thoughts will also condemn us. And in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. But this cannot be. We must come forth and stand before him in his glory and in his power and in his might, majesty, and dominion and acknowledge to our everlasting shame that all his judgments are just. Mental control must be stronger than physical appetites or desires of the flesh. As thoughts are brought into complete harmony with revealed truth, actions will then become appropriate. The timeless proverb is as true now as when it was first spoken. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Each of us, with discipline and effort, has the capacity to control our thoughts and our actions. This is part of the process of developing spiritual, physical, and emotional maturity. A prophet taught that the natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. We plead with people everywhere to live in accordance with the teachings of our Creator and rise above carnal attractions that often result in the tragedies that follow moral transgression. The Lord has proclaimed that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and is intended to be an eternal relationship bonded by trust and fidelity. Latter-day Saints of all people should marry with this sacred objective in mind. Marriage should not be viewed as a therapeutic step to solve problems such as homosexual inclinations or practices which first should clearly be overcome with a firm and fixed determination never to slip to such practices again. Having said this, I desire now to say with emphasis that our concern for the bitter fruit of sin is coupled with Christ-like sympathy for its victims, innocent or culpable. We advocate the example of the Lord who condemned the sin yet loved the sinner. We should reach out with kindness and comfort to the afflicted 
ministering to their needs and assisting them with their problems. We repeat, however, that the way of safety and the road to happiness lie in abstinence before marriage and fidelity following marriage. Declared the Lord in this dispensation, let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. There follows that a remarkable and wonderful promise. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion. Now in conclusion, this leads to a related matter I wish to mention, and that is the sexual adventurism, which is spreading like another plague across the world. There is a philosophy among large numbers of people that sexual education in our schools is the answer to the terrible problems of teenage pregnancies, abortions, and other grievous matters. I am not, to dispo I am not disposed to discuss in this forum the merits or otherwise of sex education in the public schools. But in passing, I am inclined to agree with one who was recently quoted in the newspaper USA Today. Quote, More sex education in public schools will not reverse the damaging legacy of the sexual revolution unless the clear message is premarital chastity and marital monogamy. This writer continues, There are many defects in sex education courses. The philosophy behind them is to ridicule chastity, scoff at fidelity, and glamorize sexual adventurism. They teach there is no such thing as right and wrong. Continuing the quote, 30 years of advocating sexual liberation has brought raging venereal diseases and rampant teenage pregnancy. Most sex education in the public schools morally disarms the students rather than giving them moral sensitivity to help them make the proper sexual choices. Sex education fights the modesty and morality endemic to human life. Close quote. There is in each of us that sense of modesty and morality to which this writer refers. To the young men who are here tonight, I wish to say that the Lord has made it clear, and the experience of centuries has confirmed it, that happiness lies not in, in immorality, but rather in abstinence. The voice of the Church to which you belong is a voice pleading for virtue. It is a voice pleading for strength to abstain from that which is evil. It is a voice declaring that sexual transgression is sin. It is contrary to the will of the Lord. It is contrary to the teachings of the Church. It is contrary to the happiness and well-being of those who indulge in it. You should recognize, you must recognize, that both experience and divine wisdom dictate virtue and moral cleanliness as the way that leads to strength of character, peace in the heart, 
and the happiness in life. Will and Ariel Durant, who wrote ten large volumes of history covering a thousand years, declared, quote, A youth boiling with hormones will wonder why he should not give full freedom to his sexual desires, and if he is unchecked by customs, morals, or laws, he may ruin his life before he matures sufficiently to understand that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. My dear young brethren, the Lord has been very good to you. He's brought you forth in this greatest age in the history of the earth. He's made you the beneficiary of his glorious gospel restored to the earth for your blessing. No other generation has been the beneficiary of so much knowledge, of so much experience, of so much affluence and opportunity for your own sakes, for your happiness now and in all the years to come and for the happiness of the generations who come after you, avoid sexual transgression as you would a plague. Prove your strength. Show your independence by saying no when enticement from peers comes your way. Your own strength will add strength to those who are weak. Your own example will give determination to others. God bless you, my beloved brethren. You of the noble birthright, you of the great promise, look to God and live. May you so do, I humbly pray, as I leave my love and blessing with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.